Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps. Okay, good morning. Uh, welcome to another episode of Latte with, with a Lawyer. I'm your host, Jonathan Brickman. And uh, this morning we have with us Charles Tattlebaum from the firm of Trip Scott. Good morning. Good morning, Jonathan. Glad to have you. Uh, wait, and you're in Fort Lauderdale, correct? That's correct. Yeah, okay. But I know you're a Baltimore, Baltimore native. A Baltimoreon. Baltimoreon. There you go. Hun, we can, we can go through all the uh, the Baltimore things for the audience. <laughs> I lived in uh, Bethesda, Maryland for 10 years. And uh, as I mentioned to you, my uh, relatives are long-term Baltimore people. So yeah, great city. Yep. Um, so just to uh, kick off the show here, uh, Latte with a Lawyer, what's your morning beverage of choice to get started? Uh, just black coffee, sometimes with a little equal. Excellent, good. Well, I got my coffee right here. I'm still drinking it. So are you in your office or is that just a virtual background virtual background i'm actually in connecticut right now okay got it got it are you a family in connecticut what are you doing in connecticut my my wife who i met 20 years ago was a widow and she was a teacher so she had a vacation summer home on the shore so i work virtually from connecticut off and on during the summer and she comes up to visit her family so i'm up at the oh nice we're, we're we're in connecticut old lime Okay. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. Very nice. Well, it's a lot better than South Florida, which, which is where I am today. <laughs> yes, I know. That's why I'm here. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, no, I, I need to uh, work my way up North in the, in the years ahead to get out of the heat here. But uh, anyway, so listen, uh, tell us about the kind of work that you do. I know you've had a long and, and storied career doing some interesting things. Tell us about your practice. Well, my practice is com uh, comprised of really two things. One is dealing with complex business bankruptcy cases. And the other is complex business litigation that is usually a spinoff of the bankruptcy practice. Okay. Um, I primarily, almost exclusively represent creditors rather than debtors. Okay. And so, and I also represent two types of creditors one are what are called secured creditors, which are lenders that have liens on assets, but the others are unsecured creditors who may be uh, just owed money yep. uh, for things. And I also represent companies where they get involved with customers and vendors who go into bankruptcy and landlords who go into bankruptcy. So I represent them in dealing with the bankruptcies of their customers, their vendors, their suppliers, and their landlords. Got it. Is that the type of work you've been doing for, I mean, is that what you've been doing since you started? It is. Uh, it's evolved because the bankruptcy laws, we now know it with chapter 11, didn't come in until 1979. Oh. So um, it has evolved and the practice has developed and become much, much more sophisticated than it was at the early days. Okay. I was a lender at one point in my life, and uh, I'm very familiar with being a creditor and uh, foreclosure and bankruptcy. So, so I mean, it's it, it it's really interesting because every case is something new, and what I still enjoy 
is while some of it is repeat industries, a lot of it is coming into a new industry where I have to learn the business. Okay. Because if I don't learn the business, I can't represent the client, no matter which side it's on. Um, for instance, one of my two or three most memorable cases is representing a lender in a construction company bankruptcy in Oakland, California, where my client, as part of the bankruptcy, got a 50% joint venture interest in the largest highway project in Turkish history. Hmm. And for nine years, I had to represent the client in Turkey with the Turkish joint venture partner, with the government, with the, 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 the lenders, the banks and everything in finishing this project because my client had $60 million of letters of credit up to guarantee the performance. So I had to take a quick online course in understanding Turkish. I had to learn Turkish customs. I had an interpreter with me all the time, Oh yeah. but I had 27 trips to Turkey. Wow. And so those are the kinds of things. I mean, not very few are that dramatic, Yeah. but you, you have to learn the business in order to do it. And I find that fascinating. Because you're taking that as collateral is it? Is that why? So you have to well, understand what that, it has value. Case, the yeah. client had the collateral of the joint venture interest because it had uh, financed the construction company that went bankrupt. So it took the place of the construction company. Okay. Where was it in Istanbul? Where in Turkey? It was in um, it was in by Izmir. It was a beltway around Izmir that actually went to a town called Ephesus, which is one of the largest uh antiquities places more than more than anywhere in greece actually huh. and it was a 110 mile road from izmir to a town called Aydin, and they had to tunnel through two mountains and it was oh wow. something never before done in turkey and i'm sure there was no english spoken there very little yeah and and it was convenient um the ones who knew english pretended they didn't know english and forced <laughs> me to deal with the interpreter in Turkish. Yeah, and it's a Muslim country too. I mean, it's a boot, so. Yeah, it, when I was there, it was before the current thing so much and it was much more secular than it is today. But yes, you, you really had to deal with the customs like you would never shake the hand of my woman banker uh, because men don't touch women unless they're first lineal family members. Right. And other customs and so, um, you, you have to fit in. It's their country. I can't yeah. be an American. I have yeah, to that's be right. There. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I kind of learned that when I, when I started doing business outside of the U.S. And I was just a typical, bold American that thought you could do what you did in America. And you realize when you're in Europe or the U.K. and it's different. You have to adjust. You do. And if you want to be successful, you know, it's called the home court advantage. You're, you are on their turf. And you can't say, this is the way we do it in the United States. You have to accommodate them and represent your client the same way. Yes, absolutely. So uh, I, I saw in your background here, you had something to do with the, uh, the Eagles at one point. Yes. Um, so back, this is in the early 70s. Yeah. The Eagles were owned by a man named Jerry Wallman. Jerry Wallman also, besides owning the Eagles, had built the Spectrum in Philadelphia. He actually owned the old Connie Mack Stadium, and he owned 
and he started to build the John Hancock building in Chicago. And because of some issues of financing and a mistake by the architect on the Hancock building, where they had to stop building at the 20th story of the superstructure, Wallman filed the largest chapter 11 in the history of the country at the time. Uh, it was filed in Baltimore. I and my firm represented Wallman. And one of the things we did was actually sell the Eagles for $16.5 million, which is pretty funny because today you're talking about, I think the Broncos were sold for over a billion dollars within the last couple of weeks. And yeah. I think the other thing that was pretty funny was that we had a certified cashier's check of uh, $16.5 million and the old Xerox machines had a drum <laughs> And nobody wanted to put the check in the machine to make the copy because they were afraid it would get lost. <laughs> that very funny. What what year was that that, that happened? That would be in seventy two or seventy three. Okay, interesting. So, so actually, my son is going to Philadelphia uh, in the fall for to go to Drexel University. Great school. So he's going to start there. Philadelphia is, is an interesting city. Um, so that was a big real estate developer. So most of your work has been around real estate. Is that true? Um, no, not really, because for the last 35 years, I've represented the company, which used to be known as GMAC, which is now Ally. Ally, Ally, yeah. Yeah, and I handle any dealer bankruptcies in the country. Uh, I also do the same thing for Nissan, and I do it for Volkswagen, Audi, and I also do it for Toyota in the southeast part of the U.S. Oh. So uh, right now, since before the pandemic, we've had no car dealer bankruptcies or virtually none. Right. Uh, but they, they run in cycles. And so a lot of my work has been all over the country in dealing with car dealerships. About 15 years ago, there was a dealership that filed in Huntsville, Alabama, which was the largest Chevrolet dealer in the country. It was, this was in uh, 2008 when the, uh, the, the bust hit and most of their customers were subprime customers and then you couldn't sell to subprime because they couldn't get loans. And this dealership had 14 dealerships that represented 7% of all the Chevrolets in the country. Huh. And so we had to deal with that for two or three years representing the lender. Oh, so you're still active with uh, with these uh, financiers, these lenders? Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, so I saw that uh, Warren Buffett just uh, increased his share in Ally quite a bit. Yeah. 30 million shares. yeah. They, they are one of the few entities that was spun off that has really done well on their own. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to not having the connection with the former parent. And they're probably doing better than GM Financial is. Yeah, no, I think they are. They have a good diversified business. Yeah. So I'm. Um, so um, is it common for these dealerships to go bankrupt? It must be. Uh, it it happens. A, a lot of it happens from absentee ownership uh, and overexpansion. Um, car dealers are successful because they're risk takers, entrepreneurs, and everything. So a lot of them go too much. But one of the things that's very interesting is a lot of the bankruptcies we've seen are second and third generation of the same family. Uh. 
the patriarch set up the dealership, knew everything about it, worked in the service department, second generation, got a college education, which first one didn't, and then maybe knew about the business. And then third generation came in who has the MBA who never worked in the dealership before, takes it over and it's very complicated. Yeah, yeah. interesting. That, that, I think that's very true. Yeah. In fact, um, General Motors runs a school for second and third generation dealers ah. so that if one generation wants to transfer it to the next, GM requires them to go to this school before they will allow the franchise transfer, ownership of the franchise. No kidding. Is that in Detroit? Where's the school? Or a virtual? Used to be. Yeah, used to be. I, I'm, since Ally broke off, I haven't had all that connection. But um, it, it, it was mandatory. Yeah. Ah, very interesting. So tell us about the, uh, like, how you became a lawyer, what that journey looked like, and how that all started. Well, I, I first thought when I went to undergraduate school that I wanted to be a vet. And I took the first biology course at the University of Maryland and it required all this memorization of frog muscles and stuff like that. <laughs> and I found that I wasn't a memorizer. Right. And I was taking a course, freshman course in debate, and I really enjoyed it. And so I realized I was not going to be in the, a medical professional. And I evolved and I liked the business and I evolved and decided to go to law school. Um, I went to law school um, at the University of Maryland, did very well, was on the law review, got a job clerking for a federal judge. Um, when I finished, it was Vietnam time. I got drafted. Huh. I chose not to go into JAG because it was a five-year commitment. So I was drafted to be a tank driver. Uh, I, no kidding. Uh, luck, it was very fortunately because I didn't go to Vietnam. Okay. Um, and I did that for two years and then came back. And I'd never taken a bankruptcy course in law school. And the only job I could get was with the firm that did bankruptcy work. And that's how I got into it. Oh, very interesting. Did you go to Did you go to law school right after undergraduate? Yes, I did. Really? Was that normal then? For people yeah, to it, very, very much so. I would say. 75% of our class were people who came right from undergraduate school and 25 were returning veterans. Huh, interesting. Because people had been drafted. And the other thing was, this was Vietnam. So if you stopped undergraduate school, you got drafted. So you went to graduate school, to school. You keep your deferment going. Ah, that made sense, okay. Got it. I had a lawyer on uh, from uh, Europe, Germany, and they were explaining the higher ed system there. And you you literally have to sort of pick a path. And from there is no it's it start. You know, if you want to become a lawyer, you basically have to put a stake in the ground as a when you're going into university and follow that path. If you don't finish and get your credential, you have nothing. You have to start again. It's a very different process. Yeah. Um, the other thing is in. 92 and 93, I took a sabbatical and worked for the State Department. Um, I had uh, almost a year off and on in Croatia and, and a year in Slovakia. This was when communism fell mm. and the USAID, part of State Department, and the countries realized that unless they installed business laws in the countries, because they didn't have business laws, there would be no investment. 
So I was helping the lead teams of uh, educators, lawyers, judges who would visit. And we worked with the legislatures and the judges and the law schools in creating business laws, um, which they needed uh, mm. a whole new business law, one for Croatia and one for Slovakia. Interesting. And, and, and do those still stand today? And those have been successful? Um, Croatia much more than Slovakia. Yeah. Uh, Slovakia is involved because when it's separated from the Czech Republic, all of the, what we would call white collar businesses and everything were in the Czech Republic. And Slovakia, because of what the communists did, was the poor industrial area that really was not fed with any money or stuff like that. So Slovakia has evolved into much more of an economic equal mm. than the Czech Republic with the Czech Republic. So they've evolved their laws a little bit more, but a lot of it's still what we did. And most of it was uh, based on German law rather than US business law. Okay. And how, how different is that German law? Let um, much more, much less litigious. You you create a contract and people agree to it. You don't you don't have so much um, fine print and everything else like that. Okay, well that's a good segue into litigation. I'm curious about that. Did you have to litigate over the years and be in a courtroom? Oh yes, yes. Um, but litigation in bankruptcy is a little bit different. Okay. Because usually a plaintiff and defendant one wants one thing, one wants another. In bankruptcy, if I'm representing the creditor, I need the debtor to succeed if it's in reorganization. Right. I don't want to get my money and close the business because it's my customer, my client's customer. Right. So you are litigating, but you're also working towards the same goal. And uh, but then when they fail, usually there's a blame. And the trustee will sue the lender for what's called lender liability. So I wind up defending jury trials for lenders who are accused of causing the bankruptcy. And then, although we're seeing more of it than it used to be, you do have fraudulent bankruptcies where then I representing the creditor will go after those who perpetrated the fraud or insurance companies or things like that. So we do get a lot more litigation uh, in bankruptcy than uh, a lot of other things. And bankruptcy is like the emergency room practice. You get hearings with evidence in four weeks. You don't have months and months like normal litigators. Okay. Uh, things have to be decided right away. And you can get three weeks to take depositions, get all your documents and be prepared for a full day trial where traditional lit litigators may take six or nine months to get to that point. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, so, and these are jury trials. You're going before a jury. Uh, occasionally. It's, uh, we're, we're trying to stay away from juries. Um, every, everybody agrees that it's better because the juries don't understand some of the sophisticated stuff. Uh, no, no disrespect to jurors. Sure. But uh, so many people get out of jury duty that you wind up having jurors who don't have the business acumen and it isn't fair to them because you're talking about false accounting, accounting principles, business activities, business judgment, and it's, it's not a jury of their peers. So most people, and in bankruptcy court, you rarely have a jury trial. It's only when you're sued outside of the bankruptcy court that, that you have a chance for them.
I see. I see. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. So how do, how do you prepare? Like, how do you prepare? So you are, you get the best outcome. You, you have to know more than the other side. You, I, I have always told the younger lawyers in our firm, the lawyer with the best case doesn't always win. The lawyer that's most prepared is the one that wins. And there is no shortcut. It is just understanding, memorizing, having a team. Uh, now with computerization, you can take depositions and you can put them in the system and do search engines and everything. There's, there's so much you can do that we never used to be able to do um, uh, in preparing and being in trial and being able to identify something. For instance, now, if I have a sophisticated business deposition, when the court reporter is taking the testimony, my laptop is logged into that machine so I can read what's going on besides listening. So I can go back and cross-examine with stuff like that. Oh, it's uh, transcribed. It's all annotated. You can search on it, right? The AI. Yeah. Sure. And, and legal research is so much easier now with all the computerized research. You, you can be in court and just log in and do a research if you have to get a citation. Yeah, yeah. interesting. But the bottom line is it's still preparation. Mm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I was asking because, you know, if you are, um, if you are going before a jury um, or media, you know, it's a classic sort of, you know, plaintiff, you know, civil act, civil litigation. I mean, then there is a lot of preparation to make sure that your argument is resonating the right way, right? Well, and, and the other thing, if you're in front of a bankruptcy judge or a good business judge, and a lot of court systems now have complex business litigation divisions. In, in Florida, they now have that in, in the more urban areas where the judges are more sophisticated. Mm. The bankruptcy judges are. When you're in front of a jury, you have to be like an electrical transformer to take the high voltage power and transform it to house power because if you're using language they don't understand, right. number one, they won't understand it, but they won't like you. Right. And the other thing we now do on all of these cases is do a mock jury ahead of time. Oh, you do do that. I was going to ask you. So you do do mock juries. You focus groups and things like that? Yeah. I mean, because okay. we, number one, we want to see if they like us. They like the client. They like the presentation. Okay. But second thing, to get their input, if we have created the language that they can understand when you say like i mean how do you know they like or dislike you oh they'll uh, the the mock juries will say your partner in doing the examination during the mock jury was way too aggressive um your cross-examination was way too aggressive uh you you're on stage and i mean i have jury clothing that i wear uh <clears throat> I have a pair of black wingtip shoes that have holes in the sole because when I cross my leg, I want the jurors to see that even though my shoes are shined, I'm an everyday guy and I've got a hole in the sole of my shoe. I mean, you shouldn't have to do that, but that's what we have to do besides the preparation because the jury will say, I don't like the way you look. Right. I don't like the way you act. Right. So when's, when's the last time you've been in front of a jury? I guess it was probably two years before COVID. Okay. Um, it was in Dothan, Alabama. It was actually a six-week jury trial. 
What's in Dothan, Alabama? Something's in Dothan. What's in Dothan? Not much. <laughs> no, I mean, they're wonderful people. But I, I was representing Nissan on a case where Nissan got sued. And oh, we were there. a car dealership? Well, no, actually, it Manufacturing. was. Nissan had entered into a contract to change all their signage at every dealership around the country. And they let the contract to a company from Dothan. And it failed, went into bankruptcy, and they sued Nissan for allegedly uh, causing the contract to fail. We, we ultimately won. But it was very difficult because this was the largest employer in the, in, in the area, in the county. Yeah, sure. And we were against them, and we were a Japanese company in yeah, rural in Alabama. Alabama. Yeah, I can imagine how that played, yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm actually reading the book right now, Just Mercy, which uh, talks about, maybe you know about it, uh, Brian Stevenson, he talks about uh, defending, you know, public defending in, in Alabama. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, um, yeah. I mean, we were lucky on the jury, we had two nurses mm. and they were taught as part of their nursing training to pay attention. And they, we gather were the leaders and they paid much more attention. No disrespect to anyone else. Right. But they were more focused uh, than some of the other jurors. Interesting. So let me ask uh, Trip Scott, what's the rest of the firm do? Is it just business law? Um, basically, we're right. 53 lawyers. We don't want to get any bigger than that. Yeah. Um, we do everything. We don't do criminal. We don't do securities because that's a whole separate specialty. Yeah. But everything from business. It's a 52-year-old firm. It is the largest homegrown firm in uh, Fort Lauderdale. And in that area, we have an, a branch in Tallahassee because Jim Scott of Trip Scott was a state senator for 22 years and president of the state senate for four. So we have a very large lobbying presence in Tallahassee as well. Okay. And defense work? Um, not insurance defense, no. But you, what, you do plaintiff and defense or just defense? Well, we don't do, we do other than aviation litigation plaintiff's work because one of our partners was um, a pilot in the uh, Navy and Marines off of aircraft carriers during Vietnam and then became a test pilot for Northrop Grumman, then went to law school. He does aviation accident law. Okay. But other than that, we don't do anything in the nature of accident or negligence, plaintiff or defendant. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. All right. Interesting. Well, you've had an interesting career. So how much you live in Fort Lauderdale? Yes. Right downtown. Oh, nice. What, I walk the, to work. Oh, very nice. So what, what is it? Los Alces? I've always Las Olas. Las Las Olas. Olas. I'm on the Las other Olas. side of the river from Las Olas. Uh, and a 55 year old house and just six blocks from the office. Oh, very nice. Yeah. I live, I live in Delray beach. So just yeah. up the road. Um, yeah. Great you, restaurants. Yeah. Good restaurants. I mean, I, I, I haven't been down here that long. Seven years. We moved here from Bethesda, Maryland. Yeah. How long have you lived in uh, South Florida? Um, since 86. Well, oh. the West coast for a little while and then the East coast. Okay. So a long time. Got it. Yeah. Very good. 
Um, so just a curious, uh, if somebody's, you know, younger lawyer, someone thinking about law school, what would be your advice today? Well, I, I think it is, if, if you're really thinking about law school, understand what, try to understand what type of law you want to practice even before you go in for your undergraduate degree. I mean, everybody sees criminal law on television looks exciting and defense if you're very, you know, you want to do public defender stuff. But today, if you're an engineer and then you go to law school, you can name your job uh, when you get out. If you are a pharmacist and you go to law school, you're a medical thing. There's so many disciplinary things that if you go into law school with that undergraduate, you may not practice law, but you can use that law degree in going into business. Um, there, there's a proliferation of lawyers. It's very mm -hmm. hard to get a job today. Um, law school graduates, I'm on the boards of two law schools and law school graduates anywhere below the middle line in the class are having trouble getting jobs. No kidding. And, yeah. um, but if you have that specialty of something in undergraduate other than arts and sciences or you know that, then um, you really can help yourself when you get out. Well, why does that make a difference? I mean, they said the same thing to me. I was an engineer and then went to business school. Oh, that's the golden ticket, right? Because of that combination. Well, so, because yeah. um, for, for engineering uh, graduates, they come out of law school. So many companies want you to come into their legal staff, in-house legal staff, understanding the engineering concepts being able okay. to read contracts, being able to read schematics and all the stuff I don't understand mm. um, that, that engineering uh, people do. Um, I have a lot of friends who were lawyers at Pratt & Whitney where they were engineers first, they went into the aircraft business and they could understand being an in-house lawyer. Um, I I, that, that's the thing. A lot of uh, pharmaceutical companies um, love to have pharmacists who become lawyers, but then they can understand the various aspects of it. Um, and then they go into patent law. Yeah, and I've talked to a lot of patent lawyers, yeah. Yes. Yeah, you can't go into patent law. You can understand how to do a patent, but how do you do a, a, a new drug patent unless you understand the drug? Right, that's very true. What, what are the law schools that you're on the board of? Um, University of Maryland, and Nova Southeastern in Fort Lauderdale. Oh, nice, Nova Southeastern, so in your backyard, okay. Got it. How is that school, Nova Southeastern? I know it's, it's more of a professional school, right? Well, no, it's very interesting. Nova is now the fifth largest uh, private university in the country. Um, it, um, Nova um, has, it's very interesting, it has more graduate students than undergraduate students. Uh, Nova is one of the few schools that has both an MD college and a DO college. And okay. starting next year, we'll graduate more doctors than any other university in the country. No kidding. Um, has an excellent, excellent business school. Um, and it has one of the best healthcare schools. Uh, their PA physician's assistance program is phenomenal hmm. uh, because most of everything they do is graduate focused. And yeah, that, yeah, interesting. So the law school is good, highly regarded. Yes, I mean it's it's you know it's not Ivy League. Yeah, it's growing, and but they have an excellent dean, and it's it's really doing very well. 
Very good. Interesting. Well, listen, I will let you go. This has been an interesting conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank uh, you. How, so what, what, how do you want to uh, leave it with people? Like if they want to know more about your business, they want to get in touch with you. Well, they can, uh, my email is cmt at tripscott.com. Uh, it's T-A-T-E-L-B-A-U-M. I'm the only one, if you Google me, that's okay. the uniqueness of the name. Yep. Uh, the other thing I need that they need to see is my separate avocation is I'm a professional clown. Uh, I'm a graduate of Clown University and I do the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade every year. Really? Wow. Yes. So um, uh, when, when you're dealing in bankruptcy law, you never meet happy people. <laughs> and so the, the clowning is a great escape for me. That's, uh, that is an interesting tidbit. I'm glad you shared that. Okay. The, uh, the, the next uh, time I need a clown, I'm going to call you up since you're right next door. Well, you know, there are a lot of lawyers <laughs> who are clowns, but I'm the only one in Florida with a degree from a clown university. That, that, is, that is true. Okay, excellent. Well, listen, folks, uh, so we've had the pleasure to spend time with Charles Tattlebaum, who is a clown, as well as an attorney. Um, it's Trip Scott. And this show is sponsored by Emotion Track, which is a legal tech platform. So I was curious about your litigation. So we help uh, litigators prepare for uh, trial and mediations with our platform that helps them understand emotions and uh, feedback from a panel audience. Anyway, thank you very much, Charles. Really interesting. Thank you. I appreciate it. You bet.